Well, Mark said the sermon would not be as long as Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy, but I can't read that clock in the back any longer, so no promises. Please uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22, that's page 63 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to be looking at 22:16 through chapter 23, verse 9 this morning. If you're visiting with us today, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and for the past few weeks, we've been in a very challenging section of, of this portion of Scripture. It's called the Book of the Covenant, and we encounter in it many laws, many regulations, rules governing Israel as God's holy nation in Old Testament times. And Nate mentioned last week that the distance between us and Israel in the book of Exodus makes it difficult for us to really understand what these laws are about. There's the cultural distance. These laws were given to a a people in the ancient Near East, and we're 21st century Southern Californians. There's the chronological distance. 3,000 years ago, these laws were given. No one had ever heard of a smartphone. There was no indoor plumbing. Uh, There was no grocery stores. And then, of course, there's the redemptive historical difference. This is Old Covenant Israel. And we are New Covenant believers in Jesus Christ, the church. And, And perhaps we're wondering, what does all this have to do with us? We are so different. Well, as we've been seeing, that even though the, the many of the laws, many of the regulations, many of the details here in the Mosaic Law were particular for this Old Covenant people, the law is still an expression of, of who God is, of the character of God, the heart of God. We see in God's law what He values, what He thinks is important, and how His law ought to shape the lives of his people. And that is true for us today as as individual believers, as a church. uh, We see here and we will see here this morning things that ought to shape us. As we see who God is and what he cares about, uh, we in turn are to reflect who he is in the world. So keep that in mind as I, I read our passage this morning. Exodus chapter 22 beginning in verse 16. It is a a bit of a lengthy section. This is God's word. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless." If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. 
and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. And then continuing in chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his help one more time. Our God and Father, as we come to this section of, of your word, we confess that we can find it confusing. We pray that you would give us understanding this morning, that you would help us to see your heart, see the things that you value, see the the grace that you show to your people and how that ought to transform our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we come to texts like this, there's a danger that we could miss the forest for the trees. There are so many details here, so many um, laws, so many rules, so many regulations. And we don't want to get so caught up in the Bible trivia that we miss the weightier matters that God addresses here in his word. And so I'm not going to explore every detail of the text with you today. There's just too much there. In- instead, I want to see how this text helps us answer a single question. What kind of community should we be? What kind of community should we be? What kind of church should we be as as redeemed people, as people who have received the grace of God through Jesus Christ? What should we be marked by? And I see at least three answers in this lengthy section. We should be a community that worships. We should be a community that does justice. And we should be a community that's shaped by God's grace. So a worshiping community, a community that does justice, and a community shaped by God's grace. Well, first, a community that worships. And and we see here in this section, um, Israel's call to be a worshiping community comes out in several different ways. For example, look at chapter 22, verse 31. God reminds them that they are to be a consecrated people. He says, you shall be consecrated to me. That is, set apart to him, devoted to his service and worship. And that was enshrined even in in the very beginning of this this event in uh, chapter 19, where God said, you will be my 
holy nation, a, a people set apart to me, a kingdom of priests to serve me. And, and that, that call to be a worshiping community gets worked out in some unique ways, some ways that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. For example, if you look at the prohibition in verse 31, that prohibition against eating meat killed by a predator, um, this is some of that cultural distance. It, it just sounds so odd to us. What is this all about? Uh, the reason for it begins to take shape in the book of Leviticus with the distinctions between clean and unclean animals, ceremonially unclean and ceremonially clean animals. Um, in verses 29 and 30, God calls them to worship him with their resources. We, we see laws there about the first fruits and dedication of firstborn sons and animals to God, something we, we saw first back in chapter 13. But I think the the most striking laws concerning worship here are those those three capital offenses. Chapter 22, verses 18, 19, and 20. This series of three laws in each, um, a certain form of false worship is forbidden, and then they require the death penalty for violations. Look at verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Uh, sorcery involves using or, or tapping into spiritual powers, demonic powers to influence situations, usually uh, for one's own advantage at another's expense. And, and this, this prohibition here is dealing with a violation of the first commandment. Remember, Israel was called to, to give exclusive love, worship, and trust to Yahweh alone. And sorcery here is a a grave offense against the Lord, seeking help from someone other than the Lord. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. He's, he's talking about bestiality, a, a perverse transgression of the distinctions God established between humans and animals way back at, at creation. And, and not only that, but I think it's likely mentioned here because in many of the pagan worship Rituals of the surrounding nations, the, the worship of fertility gods, involved such grotesque acts. And, and, and God says Israel's to have nothing to do with such things. And then verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So idolatry, uh, another obvious violation of the first commandment. Now here's where we experience some of that, that distance I, I talked about. We might not admit it, but as you hear these prohibitions and the penalties attached to them for false worship, um, it probably sounds too harsh, doesn't it? I mean, after all, we live in a liberal democracy with uh, separation of church and state, freedom of religion. In our society, worship is really just a, a private matter, a personal preference. And so what's going on here? Why, why the death penalty? I think at, there's at least two reasons. And the, and the first is false worship dishonors God. He is the creator and maker of all things, the one who is worthy of all worship and praise and honor. And, and failure to give him the worship he's due or engaging in false worship is the most despicable sin we creatures commit. But there's a second reason that, that relates to Israel itself, and that is uh, false worship threatens their very existence. You remember, Israel's in a special, unique covenant relationship with God. They're called to be 
his holy people set apart for true worship of the true God. And, and false worship, if left unchecked, will result in the covenant curses coming down on the nation. And so, and so God warns them about false worship. Now, I think it can be tempting for us to think, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. You know, that, that harsh God, that, that cruel God who's an unreasonable God, not, not the God of the New Testament. Uh, well, even in the New Testament, God takes worship seriously. Uh, you, you think of Revelation 2, the risen Christ addressing his churches, and he speaks to two churches there in Revelation 2 who are engaged in idolatry, who are um, actively promoting um, immoral practices. And, and the risen Jesus promises to come to these churches that are engaged in false worship and promises to come with his purifying judgment. And, and just to be clear, Jesus doesn't get upset if you can't carry a tune, if you forget a line in a song, or you forget where the book of Exodus is in the Bible. That doesn't upset him. It's false worship that gets his attention. And, and even, though the, these, even though we look at the, the penalties here, um, death penalty, and it sounds so serious and so harsh, uh, we, still, we still deal with false worship in New Testament times. However, in, in the church, we don't enforce the death penalty for false worship. And, and thank God for that. I don't know that there'd be many of us left. Um, under the New Covenant, the church doesn't wield the power of the sword. False worship in the church is addressed through excommunication, not execution. And you think of Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, quoting from a, a similar passage dealing with false worship in Deuteronomy. And he says, purge the evil person from among you. So he speaks to the Corinthians to, to put out of the church those who are engaged in unrepentant false worship and immorality. Um, excommunication is not as dramatic as execution, but no less serious. And so in both the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament, God takes worship seriously. And he calls us as his people to take worship seriously. Now, I don't think I need to convince you all of that. Uh, one of the strengths of Grace Bible Church has always been that we take worship seriously. Uh, we understand the importance of that vertical relationship to God that we gather here on the Lord's Day to give praise and honor to, to the one true God. But I think there's a danger for churches like ours. And what I mean by, by that is theologically conservative churches, Reformed doctrine, striving to be biblical and Christ-centered. We, we tend to put nearly all of our focus on that vertical relationship with God. You know, we, we preach and teach about personal morality and piety. Um, we, we work hard to ensure our doctrine is correct. We, make, we work at making our worship services as biblical as possible. All good things, all necessary things. But often there's a disconnect between our worship and how we relate to others. Between that, that vertical relationship to God and that horizontal relationship to our neighbors. And what often happens is our praise of, of God and the God of grace isn't translating into love for neighbors. And you, you think of what James said in James chapter 1, that religion that is pure and undefiled, that's what we're aiming at. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is what? 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion, true worship, the worship that pleases God leads to lives of mercy and justice. And that's one of the beautiful things about this section of Exodus, that in these laws, love for God and love for neighbor are woven together all throughout this covenant code. uh, We come across um, laws that address the worship of God and then at the same time, the love of neighbor. God wants us to see that these two relationships with him and with neighbor, they're so closely related. And and we see that here in this passage where he calls us to be a worshiping community, but not only that, a community that does justice. So that's the second point. A community that does justice. Justice is important to God. And we've seen that already in the laws about valuing life and valuing property. Also the, the laws about restitution. But biblical justice goes beyond just proper punishment for wrongdoing. And that's typically how we think of justice, that there's a crime and the punishment needs to fit the crime. But justice, biblical justice, the kind of justice God uh, calls his people to exhibit has to do with things like relationships, how we treat others. And so what does that look like? Well, first, protecting the vulnerable. Justice, doing justice, looks like protecting the vulnerable. And, and the laws here draw attention to several classes of vulnerable people. You probably started to pick up on that as I read through the verses. Uh, these are people for whom God has special concern. Uh, people, therefore, for whom we ought to have special concern. We, we see, for example, vulnerable women, chapter 22, 16 and 17. We read these, what can seem like puzzling laws. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And so you have this situation here. Unmarried man, unmarried woman who engage in premarital sex. And and just to be clear, this is not a case of rape. Deuteronomy 24 deals with that kind of case, and sometimes we confuse that section with this. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 lays out a penalty of um, death in the case of rape. This is something different. This is uh, two consenting individuals. You have Prince Charming comes along, and and the language here about seducing a woman, it's the idea of he woos her. You know, he, he's, he's handsome, he's, he's an exciting person, he sweeps this young, impressionable girl off her feet and uses her for the privileges of marriage uh, without the commitment of marriage. And, and the, these laws right here are designed to protect her. She's the vulnerable party. You know, in that culture, for a young woman to lose her virginity like this meant that her prospects for future marriage were very slim. Um, her future well-being and financial security were at stake. You know, her family wouldn't be around forever, and especially in a time where uh, lifespans were pretty short, um, she would eventually find herself alone. And so the, the law here forbids the seducer from simply walking away. He has two options. One, he pays the bride price and marries the girl. Or two, the father says, you know what, that guy's a scoundrel and I'm not giving my daughter to him and refuses. But in that case, the man still has to pay. 
And, and don't take the bride price to mean that this girl's being bought. Uh, this has nothing to do with property. In the, in the betrothal and marriage customs of the day, the, the groom would give a gift to the bride's family, and it demonstrated that, one, he had the resources to take care of a wife, to provide for a family, and two, it, it secured her financial future in case, you know, five children later, uh, the man drops dead. She has something to fall back on. And so this, this bride price was, was for her benefit. And, and we see something of God's heart here. He, he protects vulnerable women from being used and abused. And not only vulnerable women, God's also concerned about sojourners, widows, orphans, and the poor. We see them all talked about in um, chapter 22, verses 21 to 27. These groups have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. And so these were the, the most vulnerable, powerless, uh, in a sense, helpless classes in ancient Israel. Sojourners were foreigners living in Israel, usually as laborers or household servants. You know, in contemporary terms, you could think of them as immigrants, migrant workers, even refugees. And along with widows and orphans and the poor, they occupied the the lowest rung on the socioeconomic ladder. As I said, these groups had no power, few resources. They were easily exploited by the the wealthy and the powerful. You think about it, if if a foreigner, a sojourner, didn't get paid for work, who's going to take up his cause? He's a stranger. No family, no friends to help. And the same was true for widows and orphans. And notice here, verse 21, notice that God instructs his people to show special concern for these individuals, for these groups, special concern for their well-being. He says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. And then verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. It's the same language that was used of of Israel's experience of oppression in Egypt. They were oppressed, they were mistreated, and, and, and God, in fact, appeals to their experience there in verse 21. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, you know what it was like to be strangers in a strange land. You know that feeling of powerlessness. You've felt the sting of of mistreatment and discrimination for being outsiders. And so God says to them, treat the vulnerable the way you wanted to be treated. And specifically, he says there about the poor, uh, don't take interest from a poor person who borrows to meet their needs. You can see that there in in verse 25. Now, the the prohibition against interest interest isn't a universal ban. Um, God is forbidding making a profit off the destitute. You know, somebody is, is so um, poor and without recourse that they, they need to borrow money. And God says, don't charge them interest. Don't make their situation worse. It's, it's forbidding things like, in contemporary terms, um, predatory payday loans, things like that. Uh, God's people should give out of love, give out of a desire to Relieve suffering, not so that they can take advantage of another's misfortune. And you notice there, verse 26, if the poor person gives you the shirt off his back as collateral, 
give it back to him before the day's over. It's all he has to keep him warm at night. Now, that's a risky way to do business, although it's not really business here. But that's risky, right, for the, for the lender. If the borrower defaults on this loan and you don't have any kind of pledge, uh, you've got no leverage, right? You've got no way to recoup your losses. But God says human need takes priority. Human need takes priority. And there's a serious warning here. Um, you, you probably caught it as we read through the, the passage. God says it twice, verse 23 and again in verse 27. You know, if you mistreat the immigrant, if you mistreat the widow and the orphan or the poor, I will hear them when they cry out. And you remember earlier in Exodus, Israel under the, the thumb of the Egyptians, under Pharaoh's cruel oppression, what do they do? They, they cry out to God. They cry out to Yahweh and we read that he heard, that he heard them. It's the same language. And, and God promises that he will hear and he will defend the vulnerable. He says something that I've just been shocked by all week, verse 24. Uh, and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. The, you know, you read that and you're like, wait, what did he just say? <laughs> um, God doesn't say things like this just for dramatic effect. Uh, God is identifying himself with the plight of the disadvantaged. And he says, uh, these people occupy a, a very special place in my heart. And I, and I am so concerned for them. I, I am so interested in them that if you turn into an oppressor, I'm going to kill you. And there's a bit of poetic justice here. The oppressor's wife becomes a widow. His children become fatherless. And so doing justice looks like protecting the vulnerable. It also looks like loving your enemies. And, and there's a lot that, um, if you go on to the next section, chapter 23, there's a lot that's said there. But if you look at chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, something very surprising, I think, for us to find here in the Mosaic Law. Um, God commands Israel to love their enemies. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You know, typically we think that Jesus invented the idea of loving one's enemies, but here it's enshrined in the Mosaic Law, and, and Jesus picks up on that and expands on it. We owe love not only to neighbors, but also to our enemies. And in this situation, God says, if you see your enemy, or if you see someone who hates you for whatever reason in need, help them. Help them. Don't ignore them. And you can imagine, you know, uh, your supervisor at work chews you out in front of all your coworkers just humiliates you, embarrasses you, makes you feel like a fool. And then on the drive home from work that day, you see pulled off to the side of the road um, your supervisor with a flat tire. What's your first response? 
Uh, it's probably something like, well, serves her right, she's getting what she deserved. And you continue driving, laughing the whole way. But God's law here calls us to stop and to give assistance, even to an enemy when it's in our power to do so. And, and it's interesting that this is a part of a section dealing with justice. So we stop and help not just as an act of mercy, but as an act of justice. It's what we owe our enemy. And so God calls us to be a community that, that worships Him supremely. He also calls us to be a community that does justice in the world. And, and we've seen here there's an emphasis. Doing what is right, protecting those who are vulnerable, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, those that, that we tend to just ignore. They, they hold that a special place in God's heart. We, we heard in the Scripture reading that God is a defender of widows and the fatherless. And we see that again and again, Old Testament, New Testament, that God is a stronghold for the oppressed. He's the defender of widows and the fatherless. And He wants us as His people to reflect that, that care that He has, that concern that He has for for the destitute and for the poor and for the ignored. He wants us as His people to reflect that care in the world. And we could go into a lot of specifics here of what that might look like. But, but I think it starts, it starts with learning to see the vulnerable. Learning to see them. You see, that's what God does here. You see, He, he sees that there are oppressors and there are the oppressed. And he sees that there are some who are rich and wealthy and comfortable, and there are others who are destitute. And he names them. He calls them out here for us, sojourners and widows and, and fatherless. He, he draws our attention to the people that we most of the time do not see. And he's saying, make sure you see them. Make sure you show special concern for them. And you come into the New Testament, and this is what Jesus did, didn't he? Uh, wherever he went throughout his earthly ministry, he searched for the vulnerable people. He, he goes and finds the leper. He goes and finds the, the sinful woman in Luke 7, the Samaritan woman in John 4, the widows. Even as he suffers on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother, and he commits her to John's care. Jesus saw the vulnerable. He, he saw the people no one else paid attention to, and he was, he was drawn to them. He ministered to them. And so I want to ask you, do you see the marginalized? And, and I mean really see them, not, not just um, aware of them, but see them as image bearers, as people to whom you owe love and protection. And I'll confess that that I don't, um, not like I should, nowhere even close to it. You know, I, I'm too busy, too comfortable, too middle class, too full of moralisms about poverty and immigration to see the needy people. And God wants us to open our eyes. The, the Proverbs talk about not closing your eyes to the cry to the situation of the poor, not shutting your ears to their, to their cries. Uh, God wants us to open our eyes, and even more than that, to open our hearts. And, and 
you can ask yourself, who are the vulnerable people in my orbit? You know, it might be helpful to think in concentric circles. You know, the innermost circle, you have your family, the members of this church. And there are needs here at Grace Bible Church. There are vulnerable people at GBC. There are people with needs. And then you think just going further out, your neighborhood, uh, your workplace, maybe your children's school, the the city of Escondido, and, and so on. You know, maybe there are literal widows and widowers in your life, people who could use help around the house, people who could use help with grocery shopping. Maybe it's a virtual widow, you know, a a divorced woman, a a single mom who needs someone to go to the mechanic with her so she doesn't get lied to, Um, immigrants and refugees who don't speak English or read English very well and and could really benefit from ESL classes. Um, The list can go on and on and on. You think of the homeless, the disabled, the elderly, um, children in the womb. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. And that considering is not just a passing thought, like, oh yeah, there are poor people out there. It, it, it means personal involvement. Getting your hands dirty. Being attuned to the weak and the powerless people around you. And let me encourage you, Begin building relationships. As you, as you start to open your eyes and start to see the vulnerable, um, pursue relationships. Um, maybe, maybe it's that neighbor down the street. Um, listen to their stories. Begin learning about what their needs are. We, we're moving so fast through our lives and we're so wrapped up in our needs and our concerns that we often don't hear what the needs are. Are. Look for ways to come alongside them. You know, what are the needs of this neighborhood, the neighborhood where Grace Bible Church is located? Do we know? It's no accident that Grace Bible Church is located right here, right here at the corner of 11th and Redwood. God has placed us here. You know, maybe some of you uh, could meet with the city council member who represents this district and begin finding out how could a, a community of Christians serve the vulnerable members of this community. And so we think about this question, what kind of community should we be? We should be a community that worships. We should be a community that does justice and finally and briefly a community that's shaped by grace. And this last point really gets at the why question. Why should we be a community that does justice? Why should we be a church that cares about the poor and the vulnerable and the sojourner and the widow and the orphan? And God um, points first to his own character. Look at the end of verse 27 in chapter 22. After he tells them to, to be kind to the poor, he says, For I am compassionate. Here's why. Because I am a compassionate God. The call to be a community that does justice is rooted in who God is. Now, I don't know what your view of God is. Maybe you view him as as harsh or cold or uncaring. And that's not the case. Far from it. I mean, he's a God who cares about human suffering. He's a God who acts to relieve human misery. And God's compassion is really at the heart of the Exodus story, isn't it? Um, Israel 
in slavery, in Egypt, oppressed, crying out. And we read that he heard, he knew their pain, and he came to their rescue. And now he says to his people, this compassionate God says, I want you as my people to reflect that compassion. I want you to show that same compassion to the needy and to the vulnerable. And so he points first to his compassion, and second he points to their experience of his grace. Um, Chapter 23, verse 9, You shall not oppress a sojourner. Why? Because you know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He's saying to Israel, Remember who you were. Uh, You were weak. You were oppressed. You were enslaved. But I set you free. When you were helpless, I showed you grace. And if that was true for Israel in their experience of God's rescue in the Exodus, how much more for people who have experienced the compassion and the grace of God in Jesus Christ? I mean, in the Gospel we see God identifying Himself in the profoundest way with the materially poor and the spiritually poor. You think about it. God the Son left the glories of heaven and became a lowly nobody in a remote corner of the Roman Empire, born into a poor family. He lived for a time as a refugee in Egypt He ministered among the poor, the sick, the outcasts. He was despised and rejected. He died a shameful death, naked on a Roman cross. And all for whom? For the weak. For the spiritually bankrupt. For those who are lying in the gutter of sin, covered in moral filth. And God says, remember who you were. When you see, when you begin to see the vulnerable, you should even see yourself. You were the helpless. You were the vulnerable. You were the powerless. Remember what it was like to have made a mess of your life and and that feeling of helplessness, that there was nothing you could do to change anything about your situation. And remember what I did. Remember what I did for you. He showed us grace. Christ, the Lord of glory, came into this world and showed grace to the weakest, to the worthless, to the undeserving. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Paul says when when you start to grasp that grace, the grace of the King of Heaven who became a servant for your sake, who through His poverty has made you rich in salvation, when you begin to get that and begin to understand that you were the undeserving and the weak, it, it changes you. Not only do you praise God for grace received, that grace moves us toward the needy. It moves us toward the weak and toward the oppressed. And so we see here enshrined in God's law this this call to be a worshiping community, to be a, a community that does justice for the neediest among us, which is really just another way to say being a community shaped by God's grace. 
So let's pray and, and ask that he would make it so for us. Our God and Father, we confess that so often we can neglect the people you've put in our lives and we can be so wrapped up in our own um, circumstances, Lord, that we forget that we were weak, that we were estranged from you and alienated, and yet you came down in the person of Jesus Christ and rescued us. You showed compassion to us, grace. Father, would you cause that grace that we've received through Christ to change our hearts, change our minds? Would you use your grace to move us toward the people in our community who need to hear about your grace? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.